Hello, and welcome to Unbabbled, a podcast that navigates the world of special education, communication delays, and learning differences. We are your hosts, Stephanie Landis and Meredith Crummel, and we're certified speech-language pathologists who spend our days at the parish school in Houston, helping children find their voices and connect with the world around them. Childhood apraxia speech is an often misunderstood and misdiagnosed motor speech disorder. Because it is so rare, many doctors, educators, and even speech-language pathologists have minimal understanding of it. In this episode, we speak with SLP Jenny Bjorn about childhood apraxia of speech. Jenny has over 20 years' experience with expertise in early intervention and apraxia. She has extensive experience and training in childhood apraxia and is recognized by Apraxia Kids for advanced training in childhood apraxia of speech. Jenny travels the country presenting on the topic of childhood apraxia. She is passionate about working with parents to help encourage their children in all areas of development. During the episode, Jenny discusses the characteristics of childhood apraxia of speech, best practices for a diagnosis and treatment, and ways childhood apraxia of speech differs from other speech sound disorders. She also gives tips to parents for how to find an SLP with experience in apraxia and where to find reliable resources. Her advice at the end of the podcast to parents is so heartfelt it brought Meredith and I to tears. Today we are speaking with Jenny Bjorn, and we're so excited to talk to her about apraxia. So welcome, and thank you for talking with us. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry my voice is a little scratchy because I've been talking for a long time while we're here at the convention. An entire day straight. We'll start off with just the basics. What is apraxia of speech for children? So apraxia of speech is a motor planning speech disorder that impacts the movement of speech, so that precise movement of speech. So if you think about all the different areas in your body that you have to use in order to motor plan for speech, so we think about, I always do this with little kids. I go into classrooms and speak to little kids and explain apraxia to them. I'm like, so what do we need? You know, what do we need to use for our speech? Well, we need to use our lips, our tongue, our vocal cords, our palate, our lungs, our diaphragm. So all these different things that we need to use for speech, but the child has to be able to do all those movements precisely at the same time, at the same speed or change of speed, you know, so that those movements make speech sounds and sound and words. And so it's when there's that impairment and kids cannot motor plan all those things at the same time. Is there a difference between childhood apraxia speech, developmental apraxia speech, no. adult apraxia speech? Now, adult apraxia speech is more acquired. Okay. So that's like they didn't have apraxia before, you know, and then it's been acquired later on due to some sort of incident. Uh, but childhood apraxia speech, we know that kids are born with it and or, or it's some type of neurological event. Uh, that happened in their early childhood, or, you know, we just don't know the reason. Or they have comorbidity of some sort, like autism or a Down syndrome, that apraxia may more likely uh, fall in that category. When do you start to see signs of apraxia of speech in children? Does it come on gradually as language develops, or do some children, does it feel like it comes on suddenly? I don't feel like it comes on suddenly. I'd say all of our families 
complain of, you know, kids not talking, not babbling, that they're pretty quiet, that they're easily frustrated, that they're, you know, not saying their first words, that they have limited sound repertoire, meaning that they don't have a lot of sounds that they're able to say. And so those complaints get, I also, one of the biggest complaints I get from families is behavior. Like, I don't know what to do with this kid. You know, we're seeing so much behavior. And, and like many of my families will say that they just give the child everything they want or need because the child can't communicate and they're crying and they feel bad. And so then it exasperates the behavior. Um, so I get that a lot with my families. But so those would probably be the early signs um, of apraxia that we see. And, you know, we can see those pretty early on as young as 12 months. There's some research um, recent research stating early signs of apraxia and so that's extra helpful when you're going to assess a child with apraxia speech you can kind of look at their history to see if they fall in that category of those early signs of childhood apraxia. And as a speech language pathologist once once you get a child in your clinic because a lot of those red flags you mentioned could be for other language or speech disorders what do you start looking for as a speech language pathologist of what could be apraxia or another articulation disorder or phonological disorder. You're asking what signs? Yeah, for a differential diagnosis. For a differential diagnosis. So there's about 11 different signs we look for. Um, And kids do not need to have them all. Uh, We really look for, you know, a certain number of signs over different assessments. So meaning that over different speech tasks. So we may do an articulation test and then instead of having the child say the word once we'll have them say it twice so we can kind of look for those inconsistent patterns vowel distortions an intrusive schwa is when a child adds the uh sound so if they say the word no and then they say the word noah and then they haven't that uh sound added in segmenting or um, disrupted movement in speech is common prosody issues, meaning a child has inappropriate prosody or very much of the time we'll see no prosody, where prosody means volume, rate, stress, how are speech sounds in a rhythm. So if we speak like this, we sound segmented and our prosody is not appropriate. But um, we also may have kids that use inflection wrong if they're speaking where um, are we going to the zoo or are we going to the zoo you know they may have or like the inappropriate stress what are we going to do today are really good examples of inappropriate stress or inappropriate prosody and that would be a sign that it possibly is CAS, childhood apraxia speech. Yep, mixed with other signs. Right. So, yeah, we have to look across many different speech tests. So the thing is, you know, people, what will happen is I'll have parents message me a lot and like, my kid's not talking, I think they have apraxia. I'm like, well, how many sounds and how many words do they have and are they combining them? No, they're not doing anything. Then we cannot diagnose apraxia. Right. Because we need more signs. Now, we can assume that that child is language delayed and speech delayed because they don't have a lot of sounds in their repertoire and then we're going to do early intervention therapy to get them using more sounds in their play and and talking but 
uh, we can't diagnose apraxia until we really have a child using um, sounds and uh, movement patterns through uh, words or consonant vowel combinations even. What things do you use to diagnose aprax childhood apraxia? So I use the DEMS, which is Edith Strand's new assessment. Um, when I went to her training, she had, the DEMS was not out yet, but when um, she was presenting, she was like, you don't even need to buy the DEMS, you can make your own DEMS, it's easy. You're just gonna pick these words, these words, these kinds of words, and these kinds of words, and then you're gonna look for this consistency across, you know, across uh, speech tasks. So I've also created my own informal assessment. Now Edith's is standardized, mine's informal. So I think it just depends on the child which one I use. And so I use both of those interchangeably. So that's what I use. And I use a lot of parent report. Um, you know, many times parents have already, by the time they've come to me, they've already researched so much about childhood apraxia and they're like, they're doing this and this and this and this and this. And then it's helpful because then I know from parent report and then I can really pull stuff out of the child to get a better answer of, hey, yeah, I'm seeing this or no, that's, that's more typical for other speech sound disorders. And then you have to diagnose, you, you have to like dissect, not diagnose, but you have to dissect because many kids have a phonological impairment along with a childhood apraxia speech. And then you have to, you, you have to rule out dysarthria as well. So, which is way less common and that's pretty easy to rule out right away if you just see, but if you're having any breath support issues and you got to kind of look at the history of the child for dysarthria, but yeah, I mean, those assessments work really well and sometimes it can't be done in one day. Sometimes anapraxia uh, diagnosis has to be looked at over the course of weeks or months. Yeah, it's very tricky to diagnose and it takes a full battery of assessment and seeing them in multiple different areas, I think, to rule out all of those things and it becomes more difficult, like you said, when they might have both. Right. And you know, sometimes it's really clear cut. You're like, yep, that's it. And those are the ones I love because then I'm not questioning myself. Right. Yes. But um, when it's not clear cut, you do have to dig in more and really begin to understand their motor system and really figure out how it works for them. And the, the cool thing, I think one of the things you asked, what do I use to, um, to assess childhood apraxia speech? What's so different about assessing childhood apraxia speech versus other speech sound disorders is that I want them to say the word right. So I'm going to give them all the cues possible to get them to get it right. Because guess what? That's going to give me a lot of information on my assessment telling me, oh my goodness, this kiddo really works well with this type of cueing, this type of cueing, this type of cueing. And when I backed off a little bit and had them do it again, then I saw inconsistencies, vowel distortions, segmenting, what are those signs that I'm seeing? And so that's a huge difference between 
regular like our tick or phonology testing is that I'm gonna have the child say each word twice and then if they get it wrong or it's different then I'm gonna cue them in many different ways to get them to say that word correctly yeah a much more dynamic assessment way more dynamic yeah yep so if a parent feels like their child has a proxy of speech or if they know their child has a proxy of speech what would they expect from treatment what would treatment look like well, I also think that depends on each individual therapist and each individual child. So every therapist looks a little different in their practice. So I see kids from age two to six or seven is most of my caseload. And so I use DTTC, um, Dynamic Temporal and Tactile Cueing by Dr. Edith Strand. And I take a very play-based approach. So for me, we're a lot of times on the floor playing, and then I have a very small group of target words that I really work on to teach cueing, to teach motor planning, to teach um, those specific words. And I find that, depending on the child, I find that once children kind of begin to understand cueing, that motor plan that my goal and my hope is that it'll start to generalize over to other words or when I bring in new targets those kids are going to learn those targets faster because they know we have to work on it in high repetitions and they know we have to and they've seen it work before so then the child has buy-in so I think that's a huge thing for me and I talk about that a lot on my Instagram is that children getting buy-in like if they don't have buy-in and they don't believe in their therapist and they aren't seeing progress themselves then they're not going to have the buy-in and then they're not going to work as hard as it takes to do therapy for childhood apraxia speech so for me my therapy may look a little different than somebody who's prompt certified or that somebody that used the Kaufman you know the Kaufman program but as long as you are you know following the research and taking a motor-based planning approach and you're working on movement patterns and not sounds then that's key Yes. Do you find that apraxia treatment generally has to be more intensive or more frequent than maybe articulation or phonological processing treatment? There is some research out there that shows that it takes three times as much ther therapy for kids with childhood apraxia speech to make a similar amount of progress as it would for a child with a phonological disorder. So, yes, and most of the kids I see, and, you know, depending on, you know, family you know, schedules and dynamic and depending on if, um, you know, what the families can afford and what insurance covers or doesn't cover, then, you know, I have kids that will come three, four, five times a week for 30 minute sessions. And then I encourage them to, you know, if they're in a school district, obviously, you know, hey, if you can get 15 minutes a day from your speech therapist at the school district, that is awesome. I've had families come to me and be like, they're only giving me 15 minutes a day. I'm like, yeah, hello, this is great. That's the best news ever because you don't see that a lot. So I just really encourage shorter increments, but more um, frequently across the week. One of the things you talked about was being very play-based, especially for the younger kids. I love that because it adds like some functionality, and I like that. Exactly. And what other things do you bring in to do play-based type therapy? You know, not a lot. Sometimes I don't bring a whole lot of anything. Um, sometimes kids bring their own things. And I've talked to, um, this is a really great, I love this for parents and therapists. But um, so when kids bring their own things into therapy, 
and a therapist takes those away and puts them away and doesn't like let that child number one address it or you may maybe like even utilize that in therapy somehow you're taking away their um their thing that's really close to them that they may be able to talk about and communicate about so you're taking away their context so i always encourage therapists and parents to allow me you know to keep the item in there or use it as a hey it can watch us or it can play or you know if it's a little robot or whatever it is a dinosaur I try to incorporate it into my therapy if I can because then it's not taking that context away from that child it gives them a context of what they feel comfortable and confident talking about um, so I try to incorporate their things that they bring I mean, as simple as Dixie cups or um, balls, and you know, we just may do silly things or writing on the table, or um, you know, I just I typically don't have a ton, a ton of things. I'm just very I, I typically don't do worksheets or anything like that. It's just even with my, my little bit older kids, we're just finding fun things to do to play. A lot of stickers, uh, we do silly things. So it's it's. It's kind of more about me and the child. Do you use all the cards and materials that you've made? Do you use those in a play-based way? Yes, too? absolutely. So the main cards I use are the Bjorn Speech Sound Cues, and I use those in play-based. So if I usually have them spread out on the table or spread out on the floor, and if we're talking about something or if there's like, you know, say we're our, our target words are mama, dada, eat, dino, because dino is an important word for this child. Me, no, hot. Let's say we've chosen like 10 of these words and I know we're going to use all these words in our play scenario. Then I'll have those speech sound cues out there. And if the child goes ah for hot, I said, oh, you got to get your hot dog sound. And I'll just quickly hurry and pull my hot dog sound and I'll tell them hot. And then we work together using DTTC, that simultaneous production, so that the child is working on that target within play. And so I might withhold things. So if if I, we're making the dinosaur eat, then, um, and I say the food's hot, and the child says hot, I'm like, he's so hungry, he wants to eat, but the food's hot, and the child goes, ah, ah, and I say, oh, let's use your hot dog sound, hot. And then we practice it, practice it, practice it. Then I will give them the little hot food. Then then they could feed the dinosaur. And then I'll take the hot food away. And then we'll do it again and again and again as long as the child will tolerate my. So you know, material management, understanding how to play, and high repetitions within that play. You know, it just kind of depends on each child. I use a little clicker or my fingers to like always get at least five repetitions so they know that um, every single time I ask them to practice a word, they have to do five. Oh, that's great. The predictability yeah. is there. And I love that you're using your materials in a play-based way um, and not just sitting at the table and drilling. Yeah. No, I don't do any drill. I love that. Yeah, I don't do any drill. The only time I will um, flip through the Bjorn speech sound cues is, number one, if the, for some reason the kids love it. They love to try to practice the sound and put it in. So I usually do it to kind of check on sound repertoire. So, okay, what you know, it's been three or four weeks since we've looked at what sounds are in your repertoire. Let's see if you've added any more, you know, let's see if you can imitate any more, get a closer production to a particular sound. Mm -hmm. This so. is a total side note, but I've just been enjoying that it's so natural to you to use all of these cues that it's a podcast and they can't see, but as you're making all of these sounds, you're doing the cues I'm with doing your the hands. I'm doing the hand cues, am I? Hand yeah. Gestures. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love it's it. just second nature. You talk and your hands are there. Like, here I go. Exactly. <laughs> so back on track, how much parent involvement do you have? 100%. I love All that. of the time. Parents are 100% of the time in my therapy room. I'm always talking about why I'm doing things, how I'm doing things, what I want them to do, what I want it to look like. And if they don't feel comfortable or confident, I just say, don't do it yet. We'll do more parent training so that you can do it. Because I'd rather you do it right than wrong and us have to go back and remote or plan something or, you know, do it over again. So um, lots and lots and lots of parent involvement. Actually, I think it's the number one important thing within my therapy sessions, me personally. So parents aren't allowed to stay in the lobby. They have to come back to the therapy room. Uh, no break for those parents. Nope, no break. This It's not a break time. No, but that's fantastic because since we know frequency is important and those kids use the cues to be successful, like you can't follow them around all day cueing them. Nope. You so can't. having that parent buy-in increases the success of the kids and the parents. And yeah, and so much parent education and about sounds. Like, parents have no idea there's voiced and voiceless sounds. They don't understand that there's front and back sounds. They don't understand that there's nasal sounds. I had a parent email me the other day or message me on my Instagram the other day. She's like, his end sound sounds so nasal. And I was like, that's great because they are. <laughs> yeah, and it was like really re-encouraging. You know, I was really encouraging. I'm like, that's what we want. That's a really great point because I don't know if I've ever even broken it down that much with parents unless it was that specific sound that the kids are working on of like how much we use and how different the sounds are within your mouth. It's just, it comes so naturally to parents that like this is how we make the sound yeah. and you have to think about it. Yeah, I make them say them out loud. I make them feel where they're at. Where's the air going? What does it take? What motor plan does it take to make that sound? Now add more, two more sounds with it to make a word and think about the motor plan that that requires for your child. And so that just comes naturally to us because we don't have to think about that. But the children have to think about every single motor plan. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes difficult. I mean, I think about the amount of talking we've done in the past few days, and that would be exhausting. I mean, it's exhausting already. A 30-minute session to... for a child with apraxia is exhausting. Yeah. yeah. They're working really hard. We talked a little bit about the materials that you have, which are so cute and functional and amazing. Where can people find your materials? Um, so I sell all my materials on my website. So it's www.biorumspeech.com. So it's B-J-O-R-E-M is my last name. Okay. Um, but yeah, the, the blue deck is the one that most families with a pra- kids with apraxia buy or that speech therapists work with. And they, all, they are awesome, too, because we know kids with apraxia are more likely to have uh, phonemic awareness difficulties and um, early reading difficulties or reading difficulties throughout the lifespan. And so we use the Bjorn Speech Sound Cues also to work on phonemic awareness and sound-to-letter correspondence. So it gives them that beautiful visual and those cues that we're already using with the child. So they're just transitioning that over to early reading and it just works like a dream. That's great. So you mentioned that often when parents come to you, they've already like done their research and Googled. If this is a family that's just now starting down their path, do you have any resources that you like to point parents in the direction of first? I always um, send them to apraxiakids.org and that's really what I tell them. I'm like, don't Google everything. Because you're just gonna find, gonna go down a rabbit hole. Um, so just go to apraxiakids.org. Call Apraxia Kids. They are gonna be willing to help. They are the number one resource in North America. So, 
And if they're looking for a therapist, are there any questions they should ask their therapist to know to see if they have a background with treating children? Absolutely. First, go to apraxiakids.org. I think there's a whole article on that there, which is a great resource. And they also have a, uh, a listing where you can put in your zip code and look for a therapist in your area. So that's another great place. And, you know, the questions you're going to want to ask is like, how many kids a week do you treat with a child of apraxia speech? What kind of... Um, training have you had with child and apraxia speech? What approach do you use? Um, and those are kinds of things that parents really need to find out and they really need to find out if they take a play-based approach and if they are using a motor planning approach and are they focusing on movement and motor planning or are they focusing on sounds which is not what we want. So um, you know it is important to get the right therapist and it just makes makes for a little bit more due diligence on the parts of the parents. Yeah. We have one last question Okay, that we put every person in the hot spot at the end of the podcast. We ask if you had one piece of advice to give to the listeners. It can be about apraxia. It can be about general life in, at all. Just one piece of advice, what would you give? Um, I'll go with the apraxia piece because it's, it's, like, it's my entire world and my heart. Um, is that just not to stress out about it. That, you know, do... you. Look for the tools that are going to help your child, but take that time to enjoy your child. Because I think parents get so caught up in, I got to fix this, I got to fix this, I got to fix this, I got to go, 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 go. Just enjoy that time. Enjoy your child, and they are going to be who they are, and they're going to, your child's going to be an amazing, great person. Sit down and read a book with them, snuggle them, love them. It goes by so fast. My son turns 18 next month, and in a blink of an eye, I walked out of his last hockey game uh, this past week, and the door shut behind me in the ice rink, and I just bawled. We've been playing hockey since he was five, and, um, man, it just goes so fast. So just enjoy their little precious brains and bodies and just love them up. It is hard when you're working so hard and advocating and doing so much for your kids. Sometimes you do get caught in that race. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. Your, so adv- just, your advice gave me goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, Enjoy right. every and second. I my son turning I know, look at my tear. Like, no, my, cry, my tear. I've got a tear. I know. <laughs> I, know. I know. We've got little kids at home, so the idea that you know, we're going to be there one day, and it will be fast. It's I like mean, blink of an eye. Yeah. When people say that, I'm not kidding. I'm literally crying now. <laughs> That's great advice, but I thank you for sharing. Thank you so much. You're we welcome. truly appreciate you yeah. taking the time to talk to us Thanks today. Thanks for having me. And I know this is going to be a wonderful resource to people out there. Thank you. If you're not already, don't forget to subscribe to the Unbabbled Podcast on your app of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave a rating and review. A special thank you to Stig Daniels, Amy Tanner, Amanda Arnold, and Stella Limwell for their hard work behind the scenes. Thanks again for listening.